0: Gather around the internet radio machines and warm up your imaginations. The Howling Monkey Radio Theater is taking to the internet airwaves. So sit back and relax with family and friends and enjoy the Howling Monkey Radio Theater.
1: 911, how may I direct your call?
2: Oh my God, she's dead! Who who is this calling? My my name is Aaron Brown. Dana, she's dead. I killed her. You killed her. I murdered her with my knife. I, 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 she's she's dead. That's um okay. Wow.
3: On Saturday, April 11, 2015, 24-year-old Dana Stevens was murdered in a small insignificant town of Danning, Missouri. Police arrested Aaron Brown, a married man some 30 years older than Dana who had shown a great deal of interest in her. It seemed like an open and shut case, but should it have been? Well, that's the story. The Story is produced by United Access Radio, and we are really proud of ourselves for it.
0: Dana was not a bad kid. She really wasn't. She just hung around a lot of bad people. Well, that's not fair. It was really just Aaron. He was a terrible, terrible man.
3: Paul Stevens, Dana's father, remembers his daughter's all-too-short life.
0: When she was little, Dana was really involved. She was in 4-H. She was a Miss Teen Danning. Her talent was playing a piccolo. I think she played the 18 theme song. It was good. It was really good.
3: But things got hard after high school, like they do for people who live in small towns that aren't major media centers, like Danning, a town that is as much a character as any actual people in this story. Dana fell in love, and in 2009 she got married at the tender age of 18. Sharon Huntley, Mike Miller's aunt and local barfly, remembers her nephew. Mac was a good guy. He's
4: captain of the football team in high school. Go, Go fighting, him. billy goats. After school, he started working down at Miller Mills. It's his family business. They made bucket handles for three generations. Actual buckets made down St. Louis by some damn furners.
3: She and Mike were pretty happy till the accident. The accident Sharon mentioned happened in 2011. Dana and Mike already had one child, a girl named Anne Marie, and another one was on the way. But Mike would never see his second child because his head got crushed in the handle press at the mill.
1: The merciful part of the whole thing was that it was quick. Mike couldn't have felt a thing. I don't know why Mike's head was in the press. I figure he was trying to be funny. I don't get it, but that's Mike for you. (sighs) Then someone pushed the button, and wham! His head was pressed all thin and curvy and whatnot. Just like a bucket handle. Only, you know, Mike's head, not metal.
3: That was Dr. Ellis Jones. Danning is just big enough for a small hospital. Basically, one doctor and a couple of nurses on duty at any given time, but certainly no one there was equipped to deal with Mike's injuries, which is okay, really, because he died on the spot. That would have probably been the result even in New York. With Mike out of the picture and no income coming in, Dana needed help, and that is how her life collided with Aaron Brown, a man 33 years older than her, and a man who would eventually be arrested for her murder. We'll have more on that when we return to the story.
0: Funding for United Access Radio and The Story is provided by a generous grant from the Hobart Group. The Hobart Group. No one knows what they do, but the check's clear and that's what matters. Additional funding comes from Danny Pickles and Associates. Danny Pickles and Associates. We are accountants. We don't make pickles. And now, back to the story.
3: Aaron Brown was 53 years old when he first met Dana. Well that's not really true. In a town like Danning, Missouri, everyone has probably met everyone else within a month of being in town. That's how small and quaint and oddly southern Danning is. So, let's say he was 53 when he first spent any real time with her.
5: I work with, well, worked with, I guess now, what with the murder and all, Aaron down at the bank since 1980. Long time. Long time. That's
3: Donna Howard. She's a vice president at the bank. That's the name of it, just the bank. The same bank where Aaron Brown worked his entire adult life. This isn't the kind of bank you're used to seeing if you live in a city. It's laid back, no suits, no ties, but it has a vault, safety deposit boxes, and chairs. So you can tell it's a bank. Just not one that's, I don't know, citified. That's just one of the many charms of Danning, a real southern gothic town.
5: After Mike Miller died, his widow came in with her little girl in tow. She was crying, but still pretty as can be. The bank held the mortgage to her house, and she needed some help. Of course, Mike's family was going to help her out. They're decent Christian folks, and it was their mill that had killed him and all. Plus, he had left a little life insurance, so she didn't need money so much as she just needed to sort through it all. And that's when she talked to Aaron. If I had known then what I know now, I'd have stopped them from talking. Because... You know, the stabbing.
3: Aaron Brown was a teller at the bank.
5: Well, all the tellers, that's me and Aaron, also handled loans and mortgages and whatnot. Also calendars, we give them out free. This year's it's got a bunch of funny bears. They crack me up. Anyway, Dana and Aaron talked about how to handle the insurance money. He suggested that she put it in the bank, which is pretty much the best financial advice we have here. A lot of people just want to put cash in jars or mattresses, and that's just not smart. It can be stolen by thieves and bears and so on. Anyway, they just got to talking, and Dana went from crying to laughing. I didn't think much of it till I saw her again and again. It was weird, you know? He was so much older than her and married to Christy to boot. It wasn't right, but I guess that's none of my business.
3: To say Aaron and Dana were dating was probably not true. By all accounts, Dana was glad to have a friendly ear, but Aaron wanted
5: more. Dana was glad to have a friendly ear, but Aaron wanted more.
3: See? Increasingly, Aaron found reasons to talk with Dana, advising her about money and giving her gifts for her children, both the one that was already born and the one that would eventually be born, but never see her dad, because he died tragically. Remember that? Just checking people started to notice that Aaron's interest in Dana may not have been strictly banking business. We all saw it. Aaron was after more than getting that girl's account, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, you do. That's Gary Whistler. He's a local businessman and the former mayor of Danning. It's kind of the norm in these small towns. A man owns a tractor business one day, the next he owns the town. And the tractor business never does better. It's the circle of life wrought southern style. It's not in my business, of course, but we all noticed it. Thing is, I'm not sure Dana did.
1: I think she just thought he was being nice. Which he was, but
3: we all knew his being nice was part of a bigger plan, you know what I mean? Yeah, you do. So word around Danning was that Aaron Brown had designs on Dana. Romantic or just sexual, we don't know, but definitely more than platonic. Which was weird. And not just because of the age difference. He was 53 at the time. She was 20. And really, who are we to judge? Adults are adults. And this age difference is very European. Or at least out of a Woody Allen movie. I'm thinking Manhattan. But I digress. No, it wasn't just the age difference. There was also the marital status difference. Aaron Brown was married and had been for longer than Dana had been alive. I'm not going to talk about that son of a...
4: That no-good snake... If he wasn't cheating on me, he sure as hell was acting like it. Son of a biscuit. Sorry.
3: You probably won't be surprised to learn that is Christy Brown, Aaron's wife.
4: The way he acted after he met that girl was re damn ridiculous. Like he was a teenager with a crush. He thought I didn't notice, but it was hard to ignore. He kept making excuses to see her. He needed to help her set up financial plans. He needed to be there for her when her second kid was born. Said it was standard customer service. But I knew he was lying. Especially after that night, about a week before she died. The night he was screaming out the window, If I can't have you, no one will. I will kill you, Dana. I mean that for real. Those were his exact words.
3: Shocking, yeah. But, you know, under the circumstances, she may have reason to lie, right?
4: And I ain't lying. I taped it on my phone. Listen up.
3: If I
2: can't have you, no one will. I will kill you, Dana. I mean that for real.
3: I told you. Sounds bad, right? Well, we'll learn more when we return to the story.
0: Funding for The Story is made possible in part by listeners like you. Yes, you. Specifically you. Pay up now, and no one gets hurt. We also rely on grants from the Wendigo Foundation. When major companies need services of a vague nature, they rely on the Wendigo Foundation. Funding also comes from Mabel Dunbar. That lady is crazy loaded, and she loves hearing her name. Thank you, Mabel. And now we return to the story.
3: About a month before she died... Dana told Aaron Brown that she had met someone new. About a week before she died, she told him it was serious. The man was Larry Yunt, a friend of her husband's, which seems creepy to me. But the night Dana told Aaron it was serious is the night he allegedly yelled at her that he would kill her, which Christy, Aaron's wife, somehow managed to record on her phone. A week later, the 911 call came in. Dana was dead, and Aaron found himself in a Kafkaesque nightmare that makes you wonder how they could call it a justice system. It's a system, but the justice, I don't know. I spoke to Lieutenant Nip Callahan with the Danning Police Department. The department is larger than the one we all saw on the Andy Griffith Show, maybe eight full-time officers in a holding cell, but no town drunks that let themselves come and go as they please. That time in America is gone. I'm not sure it was ever real. It's nice to think it may have been.
1: I was on patrol down by the Starbucks. Yeah, we have a Starbucks, don't look so surprised. Anyway, the Starbucks is near to the home of the victim, Dana. So I was there within a few minutes, and there standing over the victim was Aaron Brown. He was holding a knife covered in blood. Him and the knife. And he kept saying, Oh my God, I did it. I can't believe I did it. I really did do it. So I took him into custody read him his Miranda rights, and took him down to the station.
3: And just like that, the system had its man. Aaron Brown may as well have been convicted then and there. It was as if the police didn't care who killed Dana as long as someone, anyone, paid for it. Here's a tape of the unnerving interview Lieutenant Callahan conducted at the station.
1: Can I get you anything? Something to drink?
2: Can you just get me a towel to wipe off Dana's blood? I, I got it all over me.
1: Do you want a lawyer? No!
2: No. No reason to pay a lawyer when I know what happened and I I need to pay the price. What do you mean, Aaron? I mean, I murdered Dana because she was getting too serious about that boy. You sure you don't want a lawyer? What's the point? I'm guilty. I can be guilty for free, you know. I Can, can I have something to eat? Sure,
1: what well, you want. I'll run and get you something down the street.
3: Outrageous, right? One could argue that police starved Aaron and then relied on his coerced confession and the circumstantial evidence from the scene of the crime to launch a witch hunt. I'm not taking a position on Aaron's guilt or innocence. That would be unprofessional. I'm just saying it seems, I don't know, like a rush to judgment. Aaron was charged with Dana's murder. In the haste to solve the case, the police did nothing. Nothing other than arrest and charge Aaron Brown, who had committed the sin of being different and being middle-aged. Why didn't they question Dana's boyfriend, or Aaron's wife, instead of just railroading Aaron Brown from minute one?
1: Well, even after Aaron confessed, which he did about eight times, we talked to Larry Aunt, Dana's boyfriend. He's over at the mud hole for karaoke night. At the time Dana was being stabbed, he was singing in front of about 20 witnesses. He was singing Wind Beneath My Wings. And he kept dedicating it to Dana.
3: Well, why wasn't Dana with him?
1: She was supposed to meet with him that night. She'd taken the kids to spend a night with Mike's parents and had come back home to get dressed and go out and meet Larry when she was delayed by Aaron. He had broken into her house and confronted her. Then he murdered her.
3: But what about Christy Brown? She had reason to, if not kill Dana, to at least frame Aaron, didn't she?
1: Three minutes before the murder, she posted a selfie on Facebook with her mom that said, I love my mom. And it was from her parents' house in Tennessee. There was uh, even a possum in the background not relevant, just a neat thing you don't see in pictures too often.
3: So the police had what they wanted to call an open and shut case. But was it as airtight as they wanted to act like it was? When we return, we'll hear what Aaron Brown has to say about that on the story.
0: Major funding for the story comes from Decaron and Metavoy. Decaron and Metavoy, experts in cbas related litigation since 1938. Decoran and Metavoy, class-action sea bass specialists, because that's an actual thing. And now, we return to the end of The Story.
3: I spoke with Jenny Lind, an attorney at the Constitutional Defense Society in St. Louis. At our request, the group looked at Aaron's case. It was the exact kind of last-minute cavalry ride toward the truth that makes these stories so great. So, what exactly is it you want us to look at? Well... I don't know. I'm not saying Aaron didn't do it. I just don't know if he did, and that's the point, isn't it? But he clearly did do it. Well, even if that's true, and I'm not saying it is, hasn't the state crossed the line? Crossed into unconstitutional territory? How? The coerced confession, for starters. Do you know what that word means? There was no forensic work done to rule out other suspects. Forensic work? Like what? No DNA testing, no fingerprint analysis? Except on the knife, which had Mr. Brown's fingerprints on it and which he was holding. But did they test the knife to see if it matched the stab wounds? No, because it was covered in blood and he admitted to the crime. So they didn't test to match the knife to the wounds? No, they didn't test it like that. So the legal experts agree the case was handled shoddily, maybe even illegally. Southern justice is not necessarily the same as normal justice, bucolic though it may be. But the real interesting turn came after I finally got a chance to talk to Aaron Brown.
2: Why are you talking to me?
3: Aaron at first said he didn't want to talk to me. He was a day away from entering a guilty plea, and probably life behind bars, no parole.
2: I don't have anything to say. That's
3: right! That was Danny, Aaron's cousin. He was hanging around at the jail the day I interviewed him. Because they let you do that in small towns. It's part of the mosaic that makes these towns, in a way, more real than Manhattan or L.A.
2: Seriously, what do you want?
3: Uh, Who wants what now? I guess I just wanted to give you a chance to tell your side of this. Without the police or angry spouses or whatever. A chance to present the unvarnished truth on a podcast where dozens of people can hear it.
2: Here's the truth. I went to Dana's house and I broke in. Breaking and entering. And I took a knife from the drawer. I waited for Dana to come in. I yelled at her. And then I stabbed her over and over on purpose.
3: He done killed her. I
2: did. I stabbed her to death on purpose.
3: But the police, they coerced you to confess, right?
2: No. Nip, I've known Nip since high school. Good guy. He was nice as could be. Everyone's been really nice.
3: Nice as could
2: be. Considering I had just murdered Dana, they were just plain cordial.
3: And professional! So, you're saying...
2: I'm saying I'm guilty of first-degree murder. I stabbed Dana to death with a knife and end of story.
3: End of story. But is the story over? There's still some obvious doubt as to who killed Dana Miller, and we don't know why she was killed. What we do know is that small towns have secrets, and sometimes those secrets have a way of diverting truth. We may never know who killed Dana Miller. It was Aaron, yep. And we may never learn why the police did all they could to convict Aaron while ignoring the mountain of evidence against other suspects. We may also never know for sure how mad a radio network can be when you chase down a story for too long with no dramatic hook or ambiguity. But that's another day and another story.
0: This program was brought to you by LawDog Productions, LLC. All content copyright, LawDog Productions, LLC. To contact us, email joe at thehowlingmonkey.com. And if you'd like to support The Howling Monkey, you can do so on Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash thehowlingmonkey.